All right, well, good morning. Go ahead and turn to uh, Mark chapter 9, if you would. Appreciate those songs, very fitting for our subject matter this morning. So for some of you who have been in Sunday school for the last couple months, um, off and on, you've, you might remember that we were going through the Statement of Faith, and we, of course, in the Statement of Faith, begin with the Holy Scriptures, and that's the reason, because we derive all of our, um, all of our understanding of who God is, who we are, of what He wants from us, and what we ought to live for in the Word of God, and so we talked about that. And moving from the scriptures, we talked about the doctrine of God, who God is, and, and um, sort of in, in his essence, and his being, and, and also what he's done in creation and redemption. And then we move from there to talk about man and who man is, that man is created in the image of God, certainly supremely valuable in terms of created things. Um, and yet, tragically, man is lost in sin and death. And we looked at that. Heavy topics, heavy topics. Um, if you were in that Sunday school, hopefully you grasped some of the enormity and the pervasiveness of sin, the gravity of sin. Um, and this morning we're going to be continuing to look at the reality of sin, but sin and its consequences. And um, we're going to be looking at, probably for a couple of weeks, the doctrine of hell. Um, there are lots of good and important reasons to look at this subject. I mean, number one, it's in the scriptures. Um, this is something that we must know. This is part of the whole counsel of God. Paul says that he declares so that he's not guilty of the blood of, of, of men. <laughs> so I want to be innocent, right, from you guys. Um, when I stand before God, I want to be able to say there that I did not shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God. And part of that whole counsel is this sobering doctrine of hell. Um, and so, it's in the scriptures, and it's part of the whole counsel of God. Um, and also, it's, it's a primary teaching on the lips of our Lord Jesus. Um, this is something that he brought up, I would almost argue, um, on every page of the Gospels, almost. It's always there in some way, shape, or form. And um, it's not the zealous, bold Apostle Paul that simply comes up with it, extrapolates it from the Old Testament. It's Jesus our Lord who gives some of the most graphic depictions of the state of the wicked. Um, so we want to look at it for these, these two reasons. We also want to look at it from the standpoint that to the degree that you jettison the doctrine of hell in your church and in your consciousness is the degree that I think you will lose your zeal for evangelism. Um, and I think you will also lose your, your sense of the importance of being holy yourself. And we'll look at a couple, couple texts this morning that will indicate what I'm saying there. Um, the bottom line here is that sin is repugnant to God. It is absolutely repugnant to Him. It goes against every fiber of His being. And one thing that is just inescapable is His holy hatred of it throughout the Bible. You, you, just, you just have this sense, especially if you read through some of those Old Testament texts, where, where even small things, seemingly small to us, evoke his wrath and his, and his hatred. Um, picking up sticks on the Sabbath day. That's it, a rebellion against his laws, an aversion to, therefore, his righteousness. And, and that man was killed. 
Uzzah putting his hand up on the ark when he ought not be touching it. These kinds of little glimpses that you get of God's holiness against sin. It's not as if God really especially hated these two sins, right? He hates all sin, but he gives you just quick snapshot glimpses at what his holiness, um, the, the impact of his holiness upon lawlessness, what, what that really is, um, and what it will finally be uh, for eternity. So, so um, we must have a sense of the holiness of God, and, and, and as you look into the doctrine of hell, you get that sense of just how holy God is and how awful sin is. And it's no laughing matter. Um, so we're going to look at that. We're going to look at it for a couple of weeks. Of course, I will um, be sprinkling in some gospel in there so that we don't have to leave here and go take some antidepressants. Um, you might be tempted to. I've been looking at these things for about a month now, and it's, uh, it weighs on you. Um, I was <clears throat> talking with Paige on the way here. It's like, how do you even, how do you go on doing many other things that you normally do with this reality? Looming just right around the corner. How do you do that? How do you live in light of these things? If someone can find me the quote, and I think it might have been by C.S. Lewis, as he was speaking at a lecture, and I don't remember what school he was speaking at, on the, um, at, the, at, the, um, at the beginning of the war, the students were asking, how can we go on to do our studies when the world war is right in front of us? And his lecture was something along the lines of, how can anybody do anything with the reality of hell right in front of us, let alone this war? And that's similar to the way I feel. Um, and again, I know the Lord has... As I'm assigned this topic and the subject matter, he's going to take me there a little bit deeper because that's just where I've been. But brethren, I want to tell you that it's, it's sobering. But it's something that we absolutely must have firmly fixed in our minds. If we're going to be faithful to the Lord, if we're going to see him rightly, if we're going to see sin rightly, if we're going to understand why we ultimately go door to door and, um, and why we all personally be, must, be, must be vigilant with regard to sin. God is not playing around with sin at all. Zero. No sin will finally go undealt with. None of them. Not one, ever. You might think right now, because sin is not dealt with, when you, know, when you see this stuff going on in certain communities with, with parades and around LGBT stuff, or you see murders happening that go unchecked, you might think that somehow these things are being forgotten, but they, will, they are not forgotten. Kids, you might think you get away with lies and deceit and all these other kinds of things because your parents don't know. I'm telling you, every sin will be dealt with. Every single one. And it'll be, it'll be either dealt with at the cross or in hell. But make no mistake, God keeps a tally of every single one of them. So, I start us off with pretty heavy words because this is heavy. This is heavy. Um, but this is, this, is, this is how holy our God is. When the Bible says that in God there is light and no darkness at all, he means it. It means it. God is absolutely, pristinely holy through and through. And sin is an absolute abhorrence to his character and nature. And we're the ones who brought this into the world. 
Whatever you think philosophically about how that works out, the reality is we are sinners. Through and through. So I'm going to start by reading Mark 9, 42 through 48. Um, I have this in sort of Sunday school layout. It's not so much of a preaching layout, but um, so it might be a little bit different than the way uh, laid out um, differently than I would normally lay it out for preaching, but I just want to get the content in our minds and think through, um, just think through best we can how to understand this, this topic. So our statement of faith says that sin's consequences bring human beings the destiny, at least for the wicked anyway, to a realm of eternal conscious punishment separated from the glory of God. Eternal conscious punishment. And I want to start by reading in Mark 9, 42-48 that is one of those specimen texts where this really comes through and then I'll pray for us. Mark 9, 42. This is right off the heels of Jesus speaking about those who cause his, his people to sin, stumble. Verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck he had been cast into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell, into the unquenchable fire. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Let's pray. Father, these weighty, sobering words from the lips of your dear Son certainly give us um, every um, intent to convey to us the heinousness of sin, the, um, the measures we must take to distance ourselves from it at all costs, not only in our personal lives, but far be it from us, Lord, to cause others to stumble. Lord, but just all of this just tells us and teaches us of how how antithetical sin is to your character and how ultimately there will be no sin in that place where you dwell with your people. And so, Lord, help us to just grasp these things for the good of our own souls. And, Lord, for the souls of those we will be moved to reach with the gospel that brings a righteousness that saves from death. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so the doctrine, if you want to put a phrase to it, is the doctrine of eternal conscious punishment. We believe that the Bible teaches that the wicked 
that is, those who do not know Christ, will suffer eternal conscious punishment or torment for their sins. This means that the wicked who do not know God are consigned to a place, oftentimes called hell, and there undergo God's just punishment, suffering consciously forever and forever, never able to escape. This is what we believe. This is what this church believes. This is what's in our statement of faith. Now there are two views out there floating around that, um, in my view, oppose, well they do oppose, not just my view, they do oppose the view of eternal conscious punishment. One is called universalism, and the other is called annihilationism or conditionalism. I lump them together um, just because I think ultimately they're going to end up saying pretty much the same things long term. But let me define these a little bit. Universalism believes that all people ultimately will be saved, universally saved. In other words, one day hell will be empty. Some do believe in hell, if you're a universalist. Some some universalists do believe in hell. They just believe that it's more of a a purging, uh, sort of a repair, not reparative, but sort of a purging um, idea where people will suffer for a while and then they'll end up in heaven. Um, but ultimately, for the universalist, hell will be empty, and heaven will be full of those formerly in hell. So that's, that's the idea of universalism. The other view, annihilationism or conditionalism, is the view that says that only, and particularly here with conditionalism, only the righteous have immortality, and the wicked do not, therefore the wicked will not exist forever. Consequently, God will punish the wicked with capital punishment, perhaps after an indefinite time of suffering. In that view, there's, there's some different perspectives in there about how long do they suffer? Is it just automatic at the day of judgment? Or does it take a certain amount of time for suffering and then the one is annihilated or goes unconscious or um, ceases to exist or however they word that? Perhaps that happens after some indefinite of time But regardless, one day hell will be empty or at least have the remnants of beings there that are unconscious. Um, And um, there are popular proponents of this. Chris Date is one that I've seen a lot online. I mean, he, he has devoted a whole website to defend the doctrine of conditional immortality. And he has built some of his views on guys like Edward Fudge, um, who wrote a, a large book on this topic. And, um, and, and again, they differ a little bit on, on how much time frame they give to the suffering of the, of the wicked. But anyway, but ultimately, what's common is that one day these people in hell will be at least annihilated or unconscious. I will not be interacting with universalism, but I will be interacting specifically with conditionalism and annihilation teaching as we go through. I will interact with them some um, because I think it's important. When you type in um, defending eternal conscious punishment or um, defending the doctrine of hell, the one thing that you see pop up more than anything is this doctrine of conditional immortality. It is something that is taking on pretty, pretty strong momentum. And um, in my view, it's unfortunate but, um, 
but uh, but this is the, the the prevailing the prevailing wind out there. I feel like is this. Someone made a comment the other day. Some some author I was listening to said that the default position of New Testament scholarship is conditional immortality. The default position of New Testament scholarship is conditional immortality. Now, New Testament scholarship can be defined pretty broadly. Okay, I mean, we could be talking about the New Testament scholarship at Princeton or Duke and. You know, we're not going to give a lot of credence to their biblical fidelity, right? But the reality is that they, they, there does seem to be this, this, uh, this prevailing sentiment um, and, and perspective now about the, uh, the destiny of the wicked being um, in the, that realm of annihilation or however you want to put it. They cease to exist or be unconscious at some point in the afterlife. So I will be interacting with that, that view some. Now, just to give you a flavor of the language of the New Testament, and I did this during Sunday school, and some of this is going to be review because I would say probably 90% of you are not in Sunday school um, as I taught these things. But just to give you a flavor of the language associated with the doctrine of hell or eternal conscious punishment, I'm going to list out some of the language that the New Testament gives us about these things. Okay? I want you to hear, this is not just, when you go to the New Testament, you're not just going to hear Jesus say, one day the wicked will be judged. Right? He doesn't just say that over and over and over. He gives lots of different descriptions, as well as the other New Testament writers. But here's just some of the language. This is not exhaustive. So, wrath of God, tribulation, distress, where the worm doesn't die, where the fire is not quenched, outer darkness, black darkness, Hades, place of torment, agony, cannot cross back over, chasm fixed, weeping, gnashing of teeth, lake of fire, beast, false prophet, Hades, death, they're all thrown in the lake of fire. Furnace of fire, fiery hell, pay or suffer the penalty, eternal destruction, destruction, judgment, eternal fire away from the face, the presence of the Lord, perish, death, second death, hell, eternal punishment. These are all, these are all terms just taken straight from the text. Um, these are phrases given in the New Testament alone. And this does not exhaust the language from, for instance, Revelation 14. I didn't even go into some of those passages, but the smoke of their fire goes up forever. The smoke of the torment goes up forever and ever. I mean, the language is just, it's just, um, uh, there's a lot of it. And um, it's something that we just really have to square in our own, own minds. The sheer volume of the instances and the terminology revealed that this is a core teaching of the scriptures and one that we must understand and hold to if we are going to be faithful to God's word and rightly see the nature of the holiness of God and the heinousness of man's sin. As you fix your ears on the language of the Lord Jesus that we'll hear in the Gospels that we heard in Mark 9, and the apostolic authors when they described the destiny of those who do not know God, and you learn in vivid and clear terms what God really thinks of sin, it just, it just 
refreshes you again at this reality that, that, that God means business with sin. In this life, you have glimpses of God's wrath, right? Like you read Romans 1. And you, you, you see the depictions there of God's wrath being expressed and sin being accelerated in a culture like ours. Or you think of plagues, or you think of famine, or you think of wars, diseases, these kinds of things. These are all glimpses and expressions of God's wrath. These things, make no mistake, this whole issue in Israel, this whole issue in Ukraine, this whole issue with accelerated sin in our society is, is are, 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 are expressions of God's wrath that are, are meant to cause people to turn to remember and realize this life is, is not all there is. <laughs> These are trumpets that blast, that tell people, Find a true refuge. Find an eternal refuge. That's what these are for. Find real life in, in Christ. But these are just glimpses, brethren. These are just glimpses. No matter how hard it gets in Israel, no matter how hard, it is nothing compared to the reality of what's coming. It's really only when you hear the language of the doctrine of hell and you consider the language of the judgment and the eternal conscious nature of God's punishment that you truly begin to be overwhelmed at God's deep antagonism and jealousy and wrath towards sinners. In Psalm 90, Moses prays, Who understands the power of your anger? That's a question, brethren. We don't. We don't. God is love. We, we, we really love that. That's, that's a wonderful doctrine. We're so thankful. But just remember, God is light. He is light through and through. And we don't understand the power of His anger. And His anger is real. And people will experience that in full measure one day. So my plan is to work through the Gospels, then a few places in the Epistles, and then in the Revelation. And, um, and every now and then you might hear me jump back and forth to other texts that might, might elucidate other texts. But my desire here, I mean, there's, there's probably a hundred ways you can do this, and I may do it differently next time. But my desire is to paint a picture. My, my desire is to paint a, sort of a full-orbed picture of this, of this doctrine. Um... I want to simply go text after text to let the ideas surrounding the doctrine of eternal punishment emerge in hopes that you'll walk away with a comprehensive view of this teaching. I want there to be no mistake about what it is and how we're to think about it. And again, just continuing a little bit of review here, the way I started was by going to the texts in the Gospels that specifically dealt with this place called hell. Um, not every passage that Jesus talks about judgment or the destiny of the wicked um, does he mention hell, the term itself, Kenna. But I want to start with the texts. Or what I did is I started with those texts. And so that's why I started by reading Mark 9. But in Mark 9, Jesus says that there are these little ones he has. That's how he views you, as these little ones. Here his children, children of God. And oh, he hates the reality that people come along our path and they make us stumble into sin. 
He hates that. He hates it when his people are led astray by others. Oh, he takes it so personally. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it'd be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he'd been cast into the sea. But then he, does, then he, he turns from the folks that make his little ones stumble, and he turns to you. <laughs> he turns to me. He turns to his disciples standing right there in front of him. You know, the disciples might at this point think, oh, you know, that, yeah, Jesus, you know, those people that cause these other little ones to stumble, yeah, they'll get what they deserve. And Jesus says, I tell you. Listen to what he says. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell, into the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. I'm not going to go through every little point I've had, I had on this text, but one of the things that I pointed out, and I think it would be helpful for people that didn't hear it to, to grasp some, is Jesus has a, um, it is not uncommon for him to use this language of it is better in giving comparisons. It is better. And so, this is, it is better text says that it is better if a heavy millstone were hung around the neck of the one who causes my little ones to stumble. It would be better if that heavy millstone were tied around his neck and he's cast into the sea. Again, get that picture. You've seen a millstone. You guys been to Haygood Mill, right? Seen those big, huge stones that are rolled over, that, rolled over the grain to crush it? Yeah, you, you, there's no way you can pick it up, pick it up by yourself, um, depending on which one it is. Um, but Jesus is giving a picture here of someone having a millstone tied around their neck, getting picked up and thrown into the sea. It's a violent picture, Jesus is. I mean, if you saw that happen on YouTube, you'd probably turn it off. If you saw people doing this to another human being, you'd probably turn it off. Cast into the sea. Right. It's a violent death. Jesus says, that's better than what will happen to them ultimately. Violent death is better than what will happen to the wicked. It is better. It would be better. If that's all that person had to worry about, oh, that'd be better. But Jesus' point is that well, it's not going to be better for them. Jesus has a knack for doing these. It is better texts. He also mentions this, talking about Judas. He says, The Son of Man is going to go, just as it is written to him, and be betrayed. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better. Some translations have it would be better. I think literally it's, it would be good. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Right. There's one of those comparison texts. It would be good for that man if he had not been born. 
It would be better if Judas never existed because of what's coming to him. Think of it. Never been born. And he actually doesn't even say in my translation that it would be better. He says it would actually be good. It would be good. (laughs) It'd be a good thing if Jesus never existed. Now, to the universalist looking at Jesus' statement there, they would have to change Jesus' words to, it is better for Judas that he was born. Right? Because one day he'll make it. So they'd have to change the language there, wouldn't they? One day Judas will be in glory. Obviously this is false. But what would the conditionalists say? They would have to change it to, it would be the same. If he had never been born. One day, he will end up unconsciously, just, yeah, unconscious or non-existence or ceasing to exist. They're all basically the same thing. And I think this perverts the scripture. Jesus' point is that violent death and non-being are both better than what await the wicked. Just from the outset, at these, with these two comparative texts, reflecting on the destiny of the wicked, to me that settles the whole discussion with annihilationism or, or conditional immortality. Of course, they have their answer, right? They, they have responses, but in my view, they, it just all of them seem to be special pleading. Jesus says violent death and non-being are, are both better and even good than what awaits the wicked, implying that they both are in some kind of misery in some continued conscious existence in eternity. Now there is some debate among those advocates of eternal conscious torment, like myself, and conditional immortality on what is worse. Is annihilation worse or is eternal conscious punishment worse? And some annihilationists will say, well, I think it's way worse to just cease to exist. I mean, that terrifies me more than just existing forever suffering. They say people really can't know, and it's subjective. But I want to say, Jesus just told you what's better. Jesus just told you what's better. It's better. Non-existence and annihilation is better than what awaits the wicked. He told you. It's not subjective. He told you what's better. The worst thing that can happen to a human being is that they be punished forever by God. So let's not play games here about what's, what's really worse. The reason that people end up going that route is it's oftentimes it has to do, not every time, at least I'm trusting that they say that they really derived it from Scripture and exegesis, but most times the doctrine of eternal conscious punishment is just, is just abhorrent to them. They can't imagine a God that would do that. You listen to the language of folks like John Stott or Clark Pinnock or, or um, Gordon Wenham or any of these others that, that jettison the doctrine of eternal punishment. It's, all, it, it's, it's, it's not all on emotional grounds, but it's, it's infused with this repugnance toward the doctrine. That my God couldn't be a God like that. That the punishment doesn't fit the crime and so on and so forth. And that's why I say we have to look at this square in the face and see it for what it is. Or you genuinely, I agree with John Stott, you're really not going to know the God that is, truly, if you don't adopt this. There's a sense in which he's right. It does alter your view of God. 
Your, your view of the holiness of God will diminish if you drop eternal conscious punishment. You will. So it is better. Now some other texts that deal with this issue of hell. One of the things that I wanted to point out here is that one of the things that you get when you, when, when you read Jesus talking about these things is that hell is a place. It is a place. I don't know the last time you thought about that or maybe you've never thought about it, but it's actually a place. The language of, of, of Jesus is so, is so uh, gripping with this. Cast into hell, he says. Cast into hell. He, he, and he uses the cast language because he just talked about the man being cast into sea, the millstone. He says, better for the guy millstone around his neck cast into sea than a man cast into hell. But it's into, it's in, it's in a place. Three times in our passage, hell is mentioned as a place where the fire is not quenched and the worm does not die. In Matthew 5.22, Jesus says, And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty to go into the fiery hell. Again, it's, that, it's a place, it's somewhere you go into. Matthew 5.29, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of your parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off, throw it from you. It's better for you to lose one of your parts of your body than your whole body to go into hell. Somewhere in God's universe is this place called hell. Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. People are thrown into hell and destroyed in hell, in this place. And destruction here, I think, can, as annihilationists or conditional immortality folks want to say, that it just means reduced to ashes or, again, non-existence or unconsciousness or however they want to come up with it. But I think this is to strain the word destruction too much. I think there are places where it can mean that, but I don't think it has to mean that. And Strong's, the, the definition here in the lexicon is to perish or utterly destroy. The idea is not extinction, but ruin, loss, not of being, but of well-being. And again, there are other, other texts here. This is all, again, review. But the language of polymy can be used of the marring of wineskins, of the lost sheep, lost shepherd, spiritual destitution, um, the perishing of gold, all of these kinds of things. It's also interesting when you look at the text where the word destroy is used with demons. When they say, Jesus, don't destroy us. There are also the same, similar texts that say, Jesus, don't torment us. And So there I think you can have some more color on what destruction actually has to do with. It has to do with an utter ruination of your existence. Torment. To stretch, detro- destroy, and to cease to exist, or however, again, they, they all word it a little different. I just think it's not warranted based on the broader teaching of hell, 
where we see that there is no notion of people ceasing to exist there. There is, there's just no sense of it. That, that Jesus does not hold out any temporary nature of anything going on in hell. There's just nothing there. There's nothing at all that indicates that there's something in there that's temporary. They consciously suffer. So hell is a place. We're going to look again. We're going to look now further. Matthew 18. Matthew 18. We'll be here for a little bit. Very similar to what Jesus said in Mark 9. Jesus said in Mark 5. But thinking about this idea that hell is a place, Jesus gives descriptions here as a place of fire, a place of punishment, where people are consigned with their whole bodies and their whole soul. Matthew 18.8 Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. <laughs> Woe to the world. I just get that sense. Jesus looking out. And he feels it, doesn't he? He feels it. He knows. He knows what happens everywhere. Just woe to the world because of their stumbling blocks. They sin. They help others sin. They just they can't help but put more and more stumbling blocks in front of you to get to the Lord. Just just woe to the world for its stumbling blocks. You feel that, don't you? You feel that. If you've got little kids that don't know the Lord, you just feel that. They get in these little arguments with each other and they don't even know how to get out of them. They're just in there. They're just always just at each other. They just don't know how to stop. They just can't stop. You've got to move them. You've got to say, you go over here, you go over here. Why? Because they don't know. They don't know how to stop sinning. It's just part of who we are. It's just so innate. It's so deep. Oh, but it's so real. And it's only the power of the gospel and the spirit of God that can break that, 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 that deep sense of selfishness and self-love from a human being. It's so deep, brethren. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. It's inevitable that stumbling blocks come, he says. But woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. If your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. Get rid of it, he's saying. It's better to lose that part of your body because it's, it's got sin attached to it. He says it's better for you to enter life crippled. than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into eternal fire. How precious is an eyeball? How precious is an arm? How precious is a leg? How precious are these things? These things are so precious to us. I mean, how much money would someone have to pay you to say, hey, I'll, I'll buy your arm for $10 million. Would you give it to him? You wouldn't give it to him. It's precious. Jesus says, look, I'm telling you, get rid of it. It is totally worth it. Totally worth cutting it off if it means you're safe from that place. If your eye causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it from you. Better for you to enter into life with one eye than to have two and be cast into fire. And sorry, than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell so it's important to, to reflect on the text here the text is gives parallel statements here cast you into eternal fire and cast into fiery hell it's the same thing it's the same place same state of affairs so what is hell an eternal place of punishment for sin 
in fire that will bring agony to your body and soul. It is an eternal place of just punishment. And that punishment will be fire. It will be fire. Metaphorical or real, I don't care, frankly. I don't know what eternal fire actually fully looks like. We get a glimpse, we're going to talk about it in a minute, with Sodom and Gomorrah, but a fire that lasts forever. Um, yeah, it's uh, whatever language... I mean, again, people can, keep, people can take this language and they can speculate out and go really, 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 really far with it. But the language of the scriptures is enough, isn't it? To just give you a sense that this is, this is horrible. And whatever, whatever the depictions here, it's going to be worse experienced. But why do people go there? I mean, these people haven't been, you know, could be your neighbor across the street, could be, your own ki- could be your own child, these people you know. Why do these people go there? Jesus says it's because these people have not been violent and aggressive against sin. That's why they go there. You haven't cut off your arm, you haven't, you haven't cut off your leg, you haven't gouged out your eye. That's why you go there. Jesus is is saying, distance yourself from sin at all costs. He doesn't just say, cut it off. He says, cut it off and throw it from you. Throw it away. Throw that agent of sin as far away from you as possible. Why? Because God throws who cause others to stumble, and God throws those who do not guard against their own sin in hell. That's why. That's a motivation. People want to list motivations to obedience and righteousness to please God. Hell is one of them. Absolutely one of them. Why do you turn your computer off? Why do you not look at it at certain times? Why do you not go to a certain place and, you know, driving around where you know this person is or, or this image is or, 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 what, or this website or that? Why do you not do that? Well, because hell is real. And Jesus says, distance yourself from any opportunity to sin at all costs. That's what he says. Do whatever it takes to remove it from you. Literally like amputating a gangrenous limb. If you do not cut it off, it will destroy the rest of you. This is Jesus' language. This is Jesus' language. This is his, This is our you know, meek and humble, lowly Jesus, Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is what he teaches. Kids, adults, brethren, get real with sin. Do not placate it. And this goes for all sin. This, goes for, this definitely goes for the pornographic culture we live in. It also goes for anything else. Bitterness that leads you into hatred of others. It also leads you... Money, these kind, a love of money, covetousness that, that leads you into just absolute worldliness. 
Or just negligence, you know, you just drift through life as if God doesn't exist and you don't want to really be used by him. And this, and, and so you end up just sort of tipping your hat to God and you, you've ended up exchanging God for video games or you exchange your God for sports or you exchange your God for these other things. Brethren, life is more than football. Life is more than soccer. Life is more than fishing. Life is more than, than so many things we give our energy to. I see people breaking their necks to be entertained. The reality is we have something coming to us. We've got a day coming. We've got a day coming, and we've got to get real with it. We have to realize that, that yes, the Lord wants us to enjoy these things, but this is not all there is to life. People need to be warned of the reality of the lake of fire. People need to be warned at the reality that if you play around with sin, you will perish. You've got to get real with this stuff. You've got to get real with Jesus' words here. What measures are you taking to get rid of sin in your life? Jesus wants to ask you that. Do whatever it takes. He's talking to his disciples. Do not presume you can be a disciple of Jesus, make it to heaven, and you haven't worn against sin. Do not think that. Do not presume that. Do not do it. You will land in the lake of fire if you do. I'm telling you, if you think that you can walk through this life without being holy, you will find yourself in the lake of fire. You will. Cowards go there. Unbelievers go there. The lawless ones go there. Those who say, Lord, Lord, will go there. I'm telling you, do not play around with sin. I cannot say this strong enough. Better to cut off that arm. Better to gouge out that eye. It's not worth it. Make no mistake, the reason people go to hell is because of lawlessness. It's the lawlessness they, they personally commit and are involved in. They are lawless. They are not lawful. God does not go around punishing innocent people. He sends people who don't want him to hell. Brethren, God hates sin so much. And he will prove it. He will prove it. He will prove it one day in a lake of fire for all eternity. He will show you. I, I, really, I really meant it. And you will appreciate what Jesus Christ has done so much more on that day when you realize what it cost God to save sinners like you and me. Jesus is utterly impartial. If you coddle sin and you indulge in sin and you nurse sin rather than cutting it off, I don't care how many Bible studies you go to. I don't care how much church you attend. Lawless ones go to hell. That's just the reality. Jesus is talking to his disciples. You read through the Gospels and you see how many times Jesus looks at his disciples square in the face. And he tells them, if your hand, if your foot, if your eye. And you've got to let that go deep. You know, early on in my Christian life, or coming out of, coming out of uh, just before I was a believer in pornography, Coming out of that, I'll never forget, five, three, four, five months into being a Christian, I was in, uh, I was in pornography, and I was devastated because I fell into it again. And I, I, I made a vow to the Lord. I'd never do it again. I made a vow, like a legit vow, like, Lord, I'll never do this again. You know, please forgive me. And the next week I did it again. And this text was burning my soul. Oh, I pray that it would get burned into yours. Just burn it in there. I'm not going to leave you without hope. 
If you're someone who has struggled with that or is struggling with that, because there's hope in the gospel, okay? But I'm telling you the truth. You need to square your mind away with these words. If you give yourself over to it and you don't take measures to war against it and do all to stand firm, I'm just telling you, Jesus tells you where you'll go. Do not mess around with it. Eternal fire is the language. Eternal fire. Talking about a place that is eternal in which God's holy fire burns. That's what it says. Fiery hell, eternal fire. So my, my question to some of the conditionalists would be, why, why would this place of fire be eternal if one day it will be empty? Or populated with unconscious, unfeeling corpses. Why would it go on to exist? Now I know they're going to have answers. But I think Jesus tells us the reason it's eternal is because the people that are signed there go on to exist eternally in fire. That's why it's eternal hell. Why make it eternal if it's not going to do anything after a certain time? There's just no sense in which here in the text at all, in any text that Jesus teaches at all, that, anyone, that people are going to be incinerated into oblivion or unconsciousness. As a matter of fact, it's so important to know that Jesus never holds out annihilation or a ceasing of consciousness or temporary suffering as a deterrent against sin. He never does it. He never holds out anything like that as, de- as a deterrent against sin. You never get the feeling at all that someday it will stop when you're reading through these passages. You just don't. You don't get any sense of it. And this is another text about it is better. It's better for you to lose body parts than keeping body parts in hell. Why? Because all body parts in hell is worse than some body parts going to glory. The loss of body parts in this play, in this life, which can be traumatic, is nothing compared to hell. Which, why? Well, because your whole body will be there experiencing pain, justly so, in hell. It's the point of the image. In other words, no measure anyone takes, no matter how drastic, is too much effort in the war against sin, and no sinful pleasure or thing that causes you to sin in this life is worth holding on to if it means that it lands you in hell. There's nothing in this life worth holding on to if it leads you into sin. There is absolutely nothing. No, no, no affair, no drug, no whatever it is. Life given over to shiny stuff. None of it is worth it. (laughs) Take Jesus' words for it, brethren. Nothing is worth it. Now, some conditionalists will say that eternal fire does not mean fire of hell is eternal or unending. And they use texts like Jude 7. I want to spend the rest of my time there. And look at Jude. Let's turn there. Jude chapter 7. 
So Jude, as you know, probably Jude and Second Peter, both pretty gripping passages and very strong against false teachers. Verse 4, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, who turn, <coughs> ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting, you, get to, you can deny God by saying, I know God and he's okay when I sin. <laughs> that's bad. But that's... That's health, wealth, prosperity teachers, isn't it? It's interesting, Jude only has one chapter and he spends a good half of it dealing with false teachers. Sodom and Gomorrah here in Jude 6 and 7 is a depiction of judgment. So let's read it. Again with these this idea of these false prophets in view that will one day be destroyed. Jude gives another example of, of these beings in the past that, will, that, have been, that, will, that were judged and as an evidence that God will judge in the future. And he says in verse 6, And angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the day of judgment, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality, and when after strange flesh are exhibited as an example, a digma, and undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Sodom and Gomorrah is a specimen, uh, historic example of God's judgment, of undergoing the punishment of eternal fire, suffering eternal fire. This text here is primarily about the judgment that awaits the certain men who come in and teach that holiness is optional. They come and teach that the grace of God gives allowance to sin and to be immoral. Of course, Jude is skating in his condemnation of these men and teaching they will be judged. And one of the proofs that he uses of their certain judgment is the historic occurrence of God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, Sodom and Gomorrah set forth in the pages of scriptures as a dogma, a paradigm, an example, suffering the punishment of eternal fire. What do we make of this eternal fire? Well, the conditionalists will say, <clears throat> Jude is saying here that the fire that was used to destroy Sodom was eternal. And so this clearly cannot mean eternal in terms of duration of time, because obviously the fire that, is, that was um, executed out on Sodom was, has gone out long ago. So obviously it can't be eternal in that sense, but rather they will say eternal means a definitive and permanent destruction. Irreversible, so to speak. So it's not that the fire is eternal. It's the results of the fire that is eternal. And so they'll take that text and they'll import it on all of Jesus' language of eternal fire and say this is really what it means. But is Jude's main meaning here? Is, is, this, is this his main intention here? Is, is the future destruction of these false prophets a one-to-one -one comparison with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah? 
Does Jude want us to think that the future punishment of these false prophets and eternal punishment or eternal fire is exactly like it was in Sodom in terms of the actual nature of it? That is, that Sodom's destruction was a temporary judgment yet eternal in its result? I don't think so. And here's some, here's some thoughts on this. For one, you have to reckon with the fact that Jude goes on to say that these men are those for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Verse 13 and 14. These are wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Forever. And it's connected to the day of judgment. So if these cities of Sodom and Gomorrah that were reduced to ashes are an, exam, are an exact example of these false prophets who are said to also be headed for black darkness forever, then we've got some thinking to do here. <laughs> Either you have a contradiction, that is that they are utterly destroyed completely by this eternal fire and do not exist anymore or unconscious, and do not go to black darkness, or the example of eternal fire and the judgment of black darkness can be harmonized. And I think what's going on here is basically two things. Sodom is an example, a sampling of judgment, a historic sampling of that. It's not meant to tell us every single thing about the nature of eternal punishment. But it does give us a sampling of the destiny of the wicked. The destiny of, specifically here, what will come on false prophets because of their false teaching. And also it's a sampling of eternal fire. Fire came down from heaven. <laughs> this was a unilateral judgment straight from God. God didn't use the Sabians to come and attack them. It was straight from God in that sense. No intermediary. But more to the point, I don't believe that this verse is saying that the destruction on Sodom was eternal fire per se, that it's fire that will last for all eternity. But again, as Jude tells us, it's an example of it. It's a specimen of it, meaning that it was a historical snapshot of God's judgment on the wicked that gives absolute credibility to the certainty of God's future destruction of the wicked. Sodom and Gomorrah is a sampling, a visual snapshot, as it were. In this, in this sense, you can see how the language of eternal fire can be maintained as well as experiencing black darkness. Because it's not saying that the destruction was literal eternal fire there that went on forever, but rather a picture of it with the truthfulness of its experience yet to come after the day of judgment in the eternal state. The other thing to remember here is progressive revelation throughout the whole Bible. The, whole, the historic destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is used as an example of God's certain judgment of the wicked. Jesus even says that for those in his day who reject him, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for them. So this is interesting. The results of the destruction of the Sodomites that apparently was eternal in nature back then, somehow permanent re, permanently resulting in an obliteration of these people, somehow here they are again. 
at the day of judgment. But I know that they believe, well, that's just because they weren't destroyed by body and soul. But you still, you have to pick your, you have to pick what you mean by eternal fire here then. If you're going to make it run on all fours. But the Sodomites here are on the day of judgment. And their fate, Jesus says, will be less terrible than those who have the revelation of the gospel age. What you find in the scriptures is that there are many Old Testament examples of judgment, like Sodom and Gomorrah, that simply give us pictures of what the ultimate eternal judgment will be. Just like you have pictures in the Old Testament of the Garden of Eden and the land flowing with milk and honey and festivals that God appoints, right, around sacrifices that give you picture of the eternal garden that will exist one day and will usher in the marriage supper of the Lamb one day, all that. You wouldn't go back to those and say that's exactly how it's going to be in eternal. That, that just goes against all of our her- hermeneutics. It's the same thing with judgment. There are others. I mean, there are instances of judgment like Old Testament Israel falling dead in the wilderness. And they serve as types or patterns or examples illustrating God's certain judgment on the wicked or those who, who become idolaters. 1 Corinthians 10, 1-4, Paul says over and over that these, these experiences of 23,000 dead falling in the wilderness, they're examples for us. But we're not supposed to say that every single aspect of them is the exact same. I mean, he says that the rock that followed them was Christ, and we're not really to think that, you know, and I say this crassly, but obviously he's not saying that Christ was granite. The rock was a picture, an example of God's means to miraculously use, these means to miraculously use to satisfy the thirst of the people, just like Jesus satisfies the thirst of his people. Of course, we aren't to think that Christ took the form of a rock. It was a type, it was an example. So I think all that Jude and, and Peter, for that matter, are doing with Sodom is holding them forward as types of future judgment, not saying it will be exactly the same in every way. So the text in Jude means something like this. The false prophets are headed for eternal fire due to their immorality and black darkness forever. Sodom and Gomorrah were judged for their immorality and are an example of God's certain judgment as well. They experience the judgment of fire and are a sample of what that final outcome of the wicked will be as they suffer eternal fire. And again, I think this is important because this is one of this, this little text here in Jude 7 controls so much of what they think Jesus means by Eternal fire, which to me, that alone seems sort of problematic. I know they almost fit, but Jesus' texts seem pretty clear, though. But I just want to make sure that this is clear. And this is, you can listen back to this. That might have been a little more academic than you were bargaining for or wanting to hear. But perhaps you can use that later if it made any sense to you. But it's important. The way we interpret the Bible is important. Revelation goes from types, pictures, anticipations. And this is why the book of Revelation talks about God's wrath mixed full strength. Because one day it will be full strength. It is not full strength right now. It was only full strength one other time in human history. Where was that? At the cross. Oh, there it was full strength. Jesus drank that cup, didn't he? And in the Revelation it will be mixed full strength. All other pictures are not full strength. So I've gone way over time. A couple application points. And I'll probably say these same things every time. (laughs) 
We must understand that hell is a place in God's universe. It's interesting, you know, we have prisons in this life, don't we? Prisons. We have solitary confinement. You know? These places where we put criminals. In this life, we have that. And are these not places that stem from a sense of justice? Where does that sense of justice come from? It comes from God, whose foundation of his throne is righteousness and justice. We cannot separate God who is love from God who is light. God's nature of absolute light and no darkness at all means that he must punish all sinners. He cannot do otherwise. And one day, billions of people are going to experience this full justice. This is one main reason why we preach the gospel. We preach because hell is real. Most will go there if I read my Bible rightly. But some are being saved. Human history goes on at this moment because God is still saving people from sin and hell. Brethren, I cannot tell you how much this should affect your prayer meetings and your personal lives when no one's looking and your love for Jesus. Our boldness our goals in life. It's definitely practical. Hell is a place. For us in Jesus Christ, we cannot overestimate, overexpress how amazing our salvation is. We are just as guilty. As all those consigned to hell. When you compare track records of sin, it's the exact same, maybe worse. Yet there is one major difference, one massive, eternal, game changing difference, and that is the one who made propitiation for our sins. Jesus Christ, the perfect spotless Lamb of God, bore our sins in His body on the tree and took them away. Violently killed like those lambs under the Old Covenant and banished from His Father like the goat in the wilderness. Forsaken. So He could take our sins away. Brethren, we get mercy because Christ got wrath. We get mercy because Jesus received our just punishment. What a relief that God did not cheat when he forgave us. Jesus really did take all of our punishment on himself. Every single bit of it. Every single sin. All of it. It's a sufficient atonement. And not only are we forgiven, but we are adopted into his family. He doesn't just forgive us and say you can go free. He says you're forgiven now come. That's what he says. Come with me. This is the essence of heaven is to be with God. And it's why the essence of hell is to be banished from God.
Oh, the essence of heaven is knowing Jesus Christ. Praise God for that. I have other application points, but those two, I think, need to stick with us. I know it's late, but I'd like to maybe sing. Can we sing? I know it's late, but I'd like to maybe end with a song. Maybe we'll do this every time. But praise God for Jesus. While Dave is coming up, I'm going to pray. And ask the Lord to burn these things into our minds and hearts. Lord, I just, I come to you and, Lord, so thankful that you came to us. So thankful, Lord, that you have done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Lord, sin is so awful. It's just hard to even fathom. And Lord, just help us to see that. And Lord, that we would want to be holy because you are holy. We want to be holy because it means fellowship with you, not out of some just raw rigor, but because we want to, we want to reflect your image rightly. We want to live in a life that shows we are thankful for the cross. And Lord, we know, and this is the, the hard part of it all, Lord, is we know we're still going to stumble into sin in our lives. And Lord, we're so thankful for the gospel of Jesus Christ that continues to forgive us of all sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We know we have to walk in attention there. But we know that that forgiveness is free and real for those who come to Jesus and ask him for it and, 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 oh, and just say the same thing about their sin that you say about it. Lord, you cleanse them from all unrighteousness. Be with all my struggling brethren in here. That A, they would just realize and remember and be refreshed that hell is real. They wouldn't coddle sin. And B, they would know that you are a sympathetic high priest, a forgiving Savior that continues to forgive us and pick us up and tell us to run. Lord, do that for, for my brethren in here who perhaps have just lost their way. Lord, take these truths. Lord, whatever I have said that is not accurate to your scriptures, Lord, help me to see it. Help my brethren to see it. But Lord, what is true? Lord, help us to live in light of it in some measure, as best we can this side of heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.